0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the UCL Minds Lunch Hour uh, lecture. Um, we are very pleased to have you all with us today. My name is Almudena Sevilla. I'm a professor in economics and public policy at UCL Social Science Institute. I am also um, the chair of the Royal Economic Society Women's uh, Committee. And and so I'm very happy to have with us um, uh, Professor Alex Bryson, uh, who's going to talk about the gender wage gap among um, university vice chancellors in the UK. This is very, very interesting work, uh, which is very much related to to my work on, on gender gaps in academia, um, in fact, uh, um, we just uh, launched an issue on gender economics uh, published by the Oxford Review of Economic Policy. Alex is one of the contributors to that issue with another paper uh, looking at the history of the gender wage gap. So I think um, I'm hoping for a very, very um interactive and interesting talk. Um, without further ado, um, oh, before I forget, yeah, there is going to be a question and answers uh, via Slido. Um, I think you all got the, the login details um, to be able to to write your questions as, as you see fit. And, and I'll be keeping an eye on that um, for uh, for. For questions so um i let i let you take over alex
1: thanks amadena um can i check can you actually see the, the slides yet
0: yes that's okay. all
1: good okay thanks very much this uh paper i'm going to present is joint with ray backen who's at the university of brighton and hopefully is joining us and as Dana says it's about the gender wage gap amongst university vice chancellors in the uk it's part of a broader project. I'm the PI on an ESRC grant on the gender wage gap, and that allowed us to contribute to Amadena's great Ox Rep um, series that's just been uh, published. And um, my colleagues are all at UCL, Heather Joshi, Dave Wilkinson, Francesca Foliano, and Brigina Vilgachevska. Uh, and as I say, Ray, who's the joint author of this paper, is, is at Brighton. So what's the motivation about this? Why do we care? Gender wage gaps, that's the gap between what men and women earn in the labor market are converging. This is true across most occupations in most countries, but it's happening slowly. It's particularly slow, this rate of convergence in high wage occupations. There's a growing literature as a result because economists and sociologists want to understand this. Why is this the case? So there's lots of occupation specific gender wage gap studies. There's one that's just been published in the MBR Working Paper series, for example, by Keller et al. on top business executives, which shows this slow convergence. But perhaps the best and well known papers in this literature are by Claudia Golden, who shows that there are large gaps in wages that persist even amongst highly qualified individuals, such as lawyers. And there are a bunch of reasons as to why that might be the case, and we can come back to that. Our contribution is to look at the gender wage gap amongst vice chancellors in UK universities. We do this for the first two decades of the 21st century. And what we've got here is we've got longitudinal linked employer-employee data, by which I mean we see employees, the vice chancellors, and we see the universities that employ them, and we see this over time. So we can track these vice chancellors over a fairly long time frame. We also have the role of employer characteristics, including performance in our data set. And a key part of the paper, which will shortly be coming out as a discussion paper, and I can send you it directly if you email me, we decompose the size of this gap in the wages for female and male vice chancellors into various contributions associated with who your employer is and who you are as a worker. We also have the opportunity, because we see people starting out in their vice chancellor jobs, to look at difference in starter wages for vice chancellors. That's the wage they get in their first year in the job. And we can look at things like returns to tenure. That's how much time they spent in their job. And I'll explain to you why that that could be important. Actually, do we care about vice chancellors? We might do if we're employed at a university and they're our boss, but the main point is that they run important institutions, degree giving institutions in higher education establishments. They also happen to be extremely well paid. Their mean average earnings uh, according to our data back in 2019 were just below 300,000 pounds a year. The job has been changing quite substantially over recent years. They're now akin to chief executive offices in large firms. One way that we know this, as I'll come on to in a minute, is that oftentimes their pay is partially reflecting the organisational performance of of the universities that they actually run. But it's still a highly segregated sectors as highly segregated occupation in terms of gender, as I'll show you, although that has been changing. This group of workers is also quite old. In our data, their mean age is 58 and they range between 43 and 76 years old. So although child rearing and child caring are very, very important explanations for gender wage gaps amongst many workers in, in the economy, This may have been true earlier on in the careers of these people, but of course, they are beyond uh, child rearing age and they are ordinarily not engaged in much child caring themselves directly. So we should bear that in mind when we think about these people. There are actually very few papers on the gender wage gap amongst Vice-Chancellors, so we're contributing to what's quite a small data set with particularly good data, I think, and we can thank Ray Back and my co-author for that, who's pulled a lot of it together. Of course, it's a controversial issue as well. Let's take the classic example of Glynis Breakwell, who's in our data set. Uh, We observe her for about 16, 17 years. She was the vice-chancellor at the University of Bath, and over that period, her real pay increased by 242%. Towards the end of her time in our data set, she was earning a little under a half a million pounds a year but she was running a big business. They had 17,000 students, including 3,500 overseas students. They were generating an income of £260 million a year, including £123 million in research grants. And my co-author and old mate, Danny Blanchflower, did uh, 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 an article in The Guardian in 2017, when Glynis was coming under a lot of pressure about her pay saying that vice-chancellors deserved more pay, not less, because of the nature of the skills that they had, which were scarce, the nature of the organisations that were, they run, who, they are important and big, and because they operate in international markets and could be poached by other universities in other parts of the world if they weren't reasonably compensated. And Andrew Oswald another economist has said yes maybe we do need to decide just how talented we want our vice chancellors to be because what we pay f- what we pay for them can really determine how they sort into these vice chancellor occupations rather than doing other big jobs in the economy the counter argument came from Lord Adonis who proposed who suggested that there should perhaps be a salary cap even for these sorts of workers and that some of the wages they were receiving were unjustifiable. That debate rumbles on. You can see it even in January this year in the Independent where there was a headline about half of elite universities um, handing out large pay packet increases to their bosses and so on. I think the last time I looked, uh, the best paid vice chancellor currently is Alice Gast, who's at Imperial College and she's paid about 550,000 pounds a year. Is there a gender wage gap? In Vice Chancellor Pay, what do we know from the previous literature? Well, there's a couple of papers there I've mentioned at the top, one by Peter Dalton and co-author, and one by Ray himself, suggesting yes, women are paid perhaps five, six, seven percent less than than male vice-chancellors. International studies are a little bit more mixed. But the other papers, quite recently in the literature, are focused on the influences on Vice Chancellor Pay. We see there's some differences in the way that pay is determined across older and newer universities. And we see an increasing prominence played by university performance in affecting Vice-Chancellor pay. Before we get into the um, details of what we find, there's some important features of the Vice-Chancellor's labor market I want to draw to your attention. Number one, Earnings differences across vice chancellors, a lot of it, about two-fifths of it, is accounted for by the university that's employing them. Okay, So a lot of the wage variance across all these vice chancellors we observe is about the institution that employs them. Secondly, few vice chancellors actually switch universities over their careers. About 12 and percent of our vice chancellors had been ex-vice chancellors elsewhere. And over the time period that we look at, 20 years, only 29 vice chancellors switch between universities in our sample over the course of that time. What does that mean? Well, it means that which university you join at the outset probably matters rather a lot. So which university you join and the starter wage that you get and then how your wage progresses over time, because there aren't going to be that many instances where you're switching universities to get a wage hike. Another key feature is substantial gender segregation. 63 of the uh, 115 universities in our data set only employed male vice chancellors over those 20 years. They paid a little bit more than other universities, about 6.4% more than universities employing both men and women. But I'm going to come back to that because I find that actually that's a little bit misleading that more difference. But there is this interesting question as to whether or not women were increasingly entering better universities over time or not. One last feature of the vice chancellor labor market, most vice chancellors are external appoint- appointees. About four fifths of, of them are appointed not Internally through the ranks of the university, but rather are, are, are appointed from outside. Any questions at this point before I move on to the two big facts emerging from our data?
0: Uh, I don't see any questions, Alex, in the okay. chat. Or, um, well, there is there is one related to uh, to maternity leave, but I think we can leave that for, okay. for later on.
1: Okay, let's let's carry on then. So the two big facts emerging from our data. Fact number one, the proportion of vice chancellors who are women rises over time. So on the x-axis here is time, 2000 to 2020. And these lines show the proportion of vice chancellors who are women. The blue line is all universities. And you'll see it starts out around 11% of vice chancellors are women. And it ticks on over and rises a little bit and then falls a tiny bit after the Great Recession and then starts to climb, such that by the end of the period, a quarter of the vice chancellors are women. So the male-female ratio is shifted from five to one to three to one. It looks a little bit different in Russell Group universities versus non-Russell Group universities. You see women tend to be more heavily concentrated in the non-Russell Group universities. Now, here's the other big fact that was it really struck us straight away from the very outset. This is real earnings, men and women, vice chancellors over time. These are the men's earnings. And real earnings, by which I mean for, for people who are not economists, I've deflated by prices for 2015. So it's the real value of earnings over time in 2015 prices. You can see at the outset here there's about a five percentage point difference between men's and women's earnings. Here, I talk a lot of the time about log points. Why do I do that? Well, in everything we we analyze, we take the log of annual earnings between men and women. But for people who don't know much about logs, it's pretty close to a percentage point difference, okay? Um, slightly more than that when you get up to uh, 19 log points. But yeah, actually back then, the difference here was about 19 log points. So that's about a 20 percentage point gap. But then it closes over time, as you can see, yeah? such that towards the end of the period, there's no real difference between the earnings of male and female vice chancellors. If we look at this, we can do it in a show exactly the same data in a slightly different way. Here, I set men's and women's earnings to an index of 100 in 2000. And then we look at their earnings growth over time. So what we see that is, that, is that earnings growth of male and female vice chancellors pretty much maps each other in the early period. But then you'll see the earnings growth for female vice chancellors rises somewhat relative to men. Both are seeing rising earnings and they're seeing quite substantial uh, changes in their earnings. In fact, um, on average, it's about 63% in real terms over the period. But for women, it's somewhat faster in the second decade than it is for men. And so, what we want to know is what what why might this be? Why might it be that uh, female vice chancellors are catching up relative to men? Uh, perhaps there's been a change in the quality difference between men and women who enter vice chancellorships. I and of course, with our data, we see certain observed characteristics of those vice chancellors uh, and and the universities they belong to. But there could be a bunch of that are unobserved to me as the analyst, such as motivation or other aspects of ability that I don't observe. That's actually rather difficult for me to capture in these actual data. The other thing I think about is that in the early period, if you think in early 2000, only 10% of vice chancellors are women. Perhaps there were barriers to entry for women. So anybody who does enter as a woman is probably Pretty able, you know, overcoming the barriers to entry. So it's not clear to me that that convergence is going to be anything about women in unobservable ways improving relative to men over time. Perhaps there was, however, initial discrimination against women uh, and that this may have changed in some way. How would we know this? Well, I can look at returns to that attribute. So I have some observed features of who these vice chancellors are, perhaps how well qualified they are. And perhaps in the first period, maybe women weren't getting full returns to those attributes, and I can go look at that. Maybe they were discriminated against on the basis of starter wages. I can look at that. Maybe, perhaps returns to tenure differed between men and women, and I can look at that. It's also possible that women were entering better universities over time relative to men. Perhaps they started out in poorer paying universities and improved and, and moved to better paying ones and another possibility is that women might be being rewarded better for quote their performance by that i mean the performance of the university that they're actually leading and that's possible and so it's this is akin to thinking about the literature on chief executive officers in the public sector where a big chunk of your wage is linked to the performance of the organisation that you're running. And there are very good economic reasons for thinking that why that should be so, and we can come back to that if you like. Performance in these data is captured in terms of uh, 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 the the tuition fees coming to a university and the grant income that it's uh, generating.
0: Alex, may I um, interrupt you for a minute? There is a question here. asking does a newly appointed VC always earn more than the person they replace?
1: Excellent question. And we'll be coming on to it close to the end of my presentation because you'll find in fact, this is one moment where I have a suspicion that there might be some discrimination against women even now. Because when a female vice chancellor comes in to replace a male vice chancellor in the same university, That woman gets paid less than the outgoing man. That doesn't happen the other way around when a man comes in to replace a woman, okay? So I'm gonna talk explicitly about that towards the end. So these are our key findings. There's still some gender segregation in this market. There's still women are perhaps underrepresented. They only constitute a a quarter of all vice chancellors at the end of the period, Boy, has that gone up over the 20 years that we observe. There's a large gender wage gap in the first decade of this century, but it closes rapidly and becomes statistically non-significant. There are changes in the attributes of women versus men and in the universities that they run. And we think that is this that accounts for the closure of the gap. That thing that I'm gonna call the unexplained gap between men's and women's earnings, which economists call a sort of residual, which is basically the the, the returns to the attributes that they have, plays no part in the closure of this gap. I'm also going to show you that there is little difference in the underlying earnings paid by universities employing male vice-chancellors versus female vice-chancellors. You'd say, oh, that's a bit puzzling. At the the outset, you said there's a 6% difference. There is. But actually, I have a slightly better, more convincing way of getting at the underlying earnings paid by universities by recovering what economists would call a residual wage paid by the university, having netted out the attributes of the vice chancellors who happen to run them. Okay, when I do that, there's no difference in the quality of the universities that that men and women are employed at over time. However, there is one really big thing that does change, and I don't fully understand this yet. The gender wage gap closure is partly due to women increasingly working in universities with higher tuition fee income. This comes out very clearly in the analysis. Another thing we find is that that there is an initial gap in starter wages between men and women, That is to say, when you start out in your vice chancellor job, women were being paid less than men, but that gap closes over time. However, coming back to the question, Almudena, that was just asked, female vice chancellors continue to receive a wage penalty relative to male vice chancellors that they replace at the same university, whereas there's no wage differential for incoming male vice chancellors compared to the women that they replace. So within a university, when one uh, takes the place of another, the women seem to to suffer a wage penalty. Okay, what do the data look like? Well, we have 115 uh, UK universities with degree uh, awarding powers and the 346 vice chancellors that run them over those 20 years so we actually have 2300 vice chancellor year observations one of the unfortunate things about the study of course is there aren't that many women so in fact there are only 64 females observed over the course of this time yeah the data collected from various sources we exclude vice chancellors leading postgraduate only institutions or medical schools Art, drama, and music colleges and small specialist institutions. Okay, so there are a bunch that we deliberately drop, but we have virtually all um, big universities and universities that, that that are degree awarding that aren't specialist. The data that uh, Ray has pulled together come from a variety of sources. We have pay data from the Times Higher Educational. Um, data set and annual survey data by the office for students supplemented by uh, institutions annual accounts. And these data include uh, uh, performance related components, but only an estimated value of the benefits in kind, uh, excluding pension contributions. So I'd say one weakness of what we've got really is we don't have solid hardcore data on the the non-earnings component of of their compensation packet, only an estimated value of those benefits. And then we have vice chancellor characteristics that come from a variety of biographical sources, including who's who. And we have institutions performance from higher educational statistical agency.
0: Alex, can I, sorry, can I interrupt you uh, here? Because Cheryl has an interesting question that is related to, to the data that you just presented. She's interested in uh, knowing whether uh, female vice chancellors who come from the industry see the same wage gap as as female uh, vice chancellors who come from academic background. Okay. I, I don't know whether you have that in your data.
1: Well, we do. So <laughs> here, here are the data, in fact, and you'll see, Um, that amongst other things we know previous work experience includes where they came from previously so includes whether they're in industry whether they were um, a researcher academic and so on and those are in our estimates now I could indeed break out subgroups of women but I'm loathed. to to do so because I've only got 64 in the first place. Yeah. So um, one needs to be somewhat careful about looking at subsets of women. Um, so I could, in principle, do that, but at the moment, I basically group them all together. But these are the sorts of characteristics that we try to account for age, whether they're an external appointment, amount of vice chancellor um, experience previously whether they've got special awards or notoriety, as it were, as a knight or a fellow, years in the current post, previous work experience and the academic discipline that they have. Then we've got a whole bunch of university characteristics, the size, um, the nature of the students. We've also got how well paid the other staff are in the university, the age of the university and different types of university. And then crucially, we've got university performance in terms of uh, the ability of the university to attract uh, grant funding, fees, tuition fees, and so on. This is what the distribution of pay looks like between uh, men and women. And, and you can see over the whole period that mean earnings are about £230,000. There is some variance and the male's earnings just are just slightly to the right of... Women showing that there is a small gap there, but that's just to show you how normally distributed the earnings are. That's important because we use an estimation technique, which just assumes some degree of normality in the distribution of the earnings. That's the only reason for showing that. Then we engage in a bunch of methods, methodologies here to decompose the earnings gap between men and women. So we take, these are all about decomposing the gap at the mean, And we run a different set of techniques, which I won't go into in detail, but will be quite familiar to a number of economists here. So we're essentially decomposing that earnings gap into that which is accounted for by the attributes of men versus women and the universities that they belong to, which we observe. So an explained component, as it were. And then an unexplained component, which is essentially the returns to those attributes. Now, some people in the literature have argued that some big part of that perhaps could conceivably, that is the big part being the the returns to those attributes, could be an indicator of discrimination, because it might be assumed in a non-discriminatory world that men and women should be receiving the same returns conditional on having the same attributes. So that we use some standard techniques. This one here, June murphy Pierce, is actually looks at decomposing the change in earnings over time, yeah? Not just at a point in time or take, but changes over time in that gap. And then this other methodology called the Gelgbat decomposition allows us to bring in the fixed university features, the fixed Um, um, potentially um, variance generating differences across the vice chancellor's pay that's linked to the university that's employing you. So if we come on to results, um, this first bullet point is is comparing the raw wage gap between men and women in period one and period two. Period one is the first decade, and period two is the second decade. Actually, no, sorry, this first bullet point looks over the whole period of the the 20 years. And the raw gap over the whole period, if you just took all of it together and didn't bother with that change over time, you'd find that the average raw gap over the period is about five and a half, six percent. About 1% of that is associated with vice chancellor characteristics. 3% is due to institutional differences between those institutions employing uh, the men and the women. Two percentage points is associated with the financial performance of the universities run by men and women. And then there's another bit coming the other way. So that's basically that. Well, any people will see that slightly above 5.5%. There's something going in the other way. Time itself is closing the gap. Now, what's really, really important about this is that none of the gap is associated with differential returns of men and men and women to the attributes or the universities employing them. So, this unexplained component in the distribution is really doing in, in the in the decomposition is doing nothing. What about then the change over time in the gap? So this is comparing the first decade with the second decade. If you just took the first decade only, the average gap in earnings between male and female vice chancellors is 12%, 12 log points, 12, 13%. It falls in the second period to a statistically non-significant 3%. That change is explained by observed differences in the attributes of vice chancellors and the universities that they lead. Again, there's no role for this unexplained component which arises from differential returns to men and women having the same set of observed characteristics. So, for example, it's true that men have higher tenure than women, but there's no differential returns to that tenure for any given year of tenure. The biggest factor that seems to close the gap and occurs uh, in the first period, 2009, 2000 to 2009, it, what we find is a difference between the role played by performance of the higher education institutions in the first decade and the second decade. In the first decade, it accounts for a big slice of the gender wage gap, two-fifths of the gender wage gap appears to be associated with the fact that women vice-chancellors are in universities which have, let's call it, quote, lower performance in the sense that they bring in fewer tuition fees. In the second period, that totally disappears. Okay, so in the period 2010 to 2019, the lagged performance of the higher education institution plays no part in explaining the remaining gender wage gap. So what I find is that women vice chancellors are increasingly likely to work in universities with substantial tuition fee income. And it's this which feeds through into their growth in their earnings. There's also a little bit of women seeing some improvement in their wage returns to tuition fees compared to men. So that's the returns for a given level of performance by the the institution. So the key takeaway here is that in the first period, it looks like men's wages benefit from the fact that they're in universities, which managed to garner very substantial tuition fee income. In the second period, that differential is gone.
0: Alex, I I have a question in, in, well, there is someone that has a question in relation to to this takeaway from from this slide. Um, the question is how have you measured the better universities that women are more likely to work at, especially if you have excluded specialists atypical at institutions? I think this question has to do with you've mentioned grant income and tuition fees. Is that, you know, would your result be um, the same or your conclusion be the same? Uh, where you to measure uh, better university in a different way ah,
1: okay good well i'm about to do that right now in the next slide so so what i've been talking about in terms of i'm not this isn't really characterizing what i've just said isn't really characterizing universities as better or worse i'm talking about really h- higher performing and lower performing purely in terms of income generation yeah either through grants or tuition fees. And the thing that does the work here in the gender wage gap closure is is what's happening to tuition fees. But here's another way of looking at whether women enter better-paying universities over time. Essentially, these charts map the mean earnings of universities um, having stripped out the vice-chancellor characteristics of the people who run those institutions. That's why I call it residual earnings, okay? So what we do is we strip out the idea that a a university might be paying a certain vice-chancellor a bit more because they're more experienced or better educated or better qualified. We strip that all the way, and then we are left with the residual differences in the earnings that universities tend to pay one versus another in a fixed way over time and that way gives us an indication of the rank position of those universities in 10 in terms of how whether they're better paying or not so well paying universities and the key takeaway from this is look the, the the lines for men and women are very very similar yeah there doesn't seem to be much difference in the mean residual earnings that higher education institutions are paying, um, whether they employ males or females. So although I said at the outset, there is a raw positive wage differential between the universities that never employ a woman vice chancellor and those that do not, uh, that, that that disappears really when you when you take account of other factors. So this does not seem, even though there's, A degree of segregation there. This does not seem to be a story about women being in quote worse universities than men, or that that's changed in any way over time. One thing that has changed over time is that there is a convergence in starter wages of men and women. Remember, I said that institution in. Vice-Chancellor turnover across institutions is actually quite high. They don't move between institutions, but here you get uh, this second bullet point gives you a great indication. Of the 115 institutions in our data, only two have the same Vice-Chancellor over the whole 20 years. 70 of them have two or three chancellors. 36 have four. And, and four universities go through five or six vice chancellors over 20 years. Yeah. So that means that we end up having 246 observations of starter earnings. Yeah. And what we find is that early on, there's clear evidence that female vice chancellors receive lower starter wages than men. In, so in the first decade, it's quite a substantial gap, it's about 14 log points. But that disappears over time, or at least it becomes statistically non-significant in the second decade. So that's telling us something about the way in which men and women are being paid right at the outset of their vice-chancellor post. It's changed over time. However, coming back to the question I was first asked, what happens when a woman replaces a man or vice versa? We don't have... Many cases of this in the data, we have 45 cases in which a woman vice chancellor replaces a man at the same university. And conversely, we have 30 cases where a male vice chancellor replaces a woman at the same university. What happens? Well, When a university appoints a new female vice chancellor, their wages are about eight to nine percent lower than the previous male incumbent and that's a statistically significant difference in our data conversely when a new male vice chancellor is hired they do not face the same penalty their earnings are about 3% lower than the female incumbent they're replacing but this difference isn't statistic, statistically significant so and furthermore this doesn't change over the course of our data so this it's quite hard to account for this difference i would have expected when a new hire comes in especially if they're quite new to vice chancellorships generally you would expect them to get slightly lower wages than an outgoing vice chancellor who will have acquired experience and acquired perhaps institution specific human capital and that would be reflected in their wages so you'd expect the outgoing vice chancellor to perhaps be earning a little more than year one of the incumbent vice chancellor, unless, of course, they've been poached from some big place and they're having to pay a lot over the odds. What I'm finding here is, in fact, we find an asymmetry in terms of what happens between men and women, which is quite difficult to explain and does make you wonder whether there might be some discriminatory component there in terms of of that aspect of starter wages. So I, do, ex- I can. Sorry, I, can I, I can... And then we can, then we yes. can come on to yeah. So essentially, what we find in in our study is that vice chancellor, vice chancellors as an occupation remains male dominated. Men men are still outnumbering women three to one. But it's but it's very different from the start of this century. Yeah, where there are only one in ten people uh, vice chancellors were women. Secondly, we see this very clear closure in the gender wage gap which appears to be due to changes in vice-chancellor attributes and in the performance of the universities that they run. The unexplained gap, that is, returns the attributes of men and women, uh, explains virtually nothing. We do find that starter wages converge over time and there's little gender difference in the returns to tenure but there is this difference between men and women in terms of starter wages when a man replaces a woman versus a woman replacing a man that's where we're at so I could leave it there Amadena and over to you
0: well thank you very much Alex um really really interesting findings and I've left with lots of questions and the audience has as well. So I'm going to start off. Um, first question is, are women vice chancellors changing their universities in different ways to male vice chancellors?
1: OK, well, I, I, I could look at that a little bit more. So I guess you're wondering what the career patterns look like. Um, I've said something about the universities that they're entering. And we've seen, for example, that um, they're more present throughout the sector and they're rising in both the Russell group and the non-Russell group, for example. But I haven't looked very carefully at um, where they were before they became vice chancellors, whether they've got more vice chancellor experience. It's in the descriptives in the data. What I'm primarily concerned about, given my relatively small sample sizes for women, is okay what's the mean difference between the wages of the men and women and if i strip out what i have as observed characteristics of men and women that i think are going to be earnings enhancing and also the characteristics of the universities they run what does the wage gap look like then and what's explaining the closure of this gap so we could probably do more descriptively with the data to explain Career patterns and career trajectories, but I haven't done that because it's not—it's it, not necessarily pivotal to my key research questions here. That's not to say that it's not an important issue and couldn't be explored further in these data, perhaps with, perhaps in a separate paper. I would argue.
0: All right, thank you. Um, there is another question from Cheryl. Um, is there any indication of the glass cliff? phenomenon, where women are more likely to be appointed to senior roles in failing, faltering institutions, hmm. which is something that has been brought up in the CEO literature as well.
1: Okay, this is, this is an interesting question, and it raises a broader point for the sort of effort on our part to account for the gender wage gap. Essentially, You're you're making a very nice point here. I've I've made an assumption that men and women enter um, 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 universities and then they affect the performance of those universities by virtue of being at the top of them. And as per the standard literature on people at the top of large organizations, the CEO literature in particular... We would anticipate, partly because these people have very scarce skills and have high bargaining power, some of that performance should filter through to the earnings that we subsequently see being received by those workers. However, you're saying, hold on a minute, maybe it can go the other way around. (laughs) Maybe women only ever get to be in universities that aren't doing particularly well and therefore, in a sense, they are bound to, quote fail. Now, that, that's not consistent with what I'm finding at all. I've, I've said to you that the, the, one of the main reasons why the gender wage gap closes is because women appear to be, whereas in period one, they're in universities which had a lower proportion of all their income coming from tuition fees. Now they're in universities that are generating very substantial tuition fees. And that seems to have fed through into their wages and has helped to close the gap. I think I estimated it's about two-fifths of the gap is accounted for by that. So that's not really consistent with what you're saying, nor is that little chart I showed on what I called residual higher education institution wages. So there I'm mapping the wages that, on average universities have been paying their vice chancellors, having stripped out the characteristics of those vice chancellors to get at essentially their underlying earnings. And what I show there is there's really no difference there between men and women over time. So I don't think this is really a story about some fixed innate attribute of a certain set of universities that men manage to enter versus a certain set of universities that women manage to enter. I am seeing a time-varying component there because I'm seeing women increasingly being in universities with substantial tuition fee income, and that this does seem to feed through into their earnings.
0: Uh, um, let me just follow up, um, play the devil's advocate here. It is true that you've shown that women are, are more increasingly joining um richer universities but they may be joining those set of universities at a different point in time so at a point in time where those universities are going through a tough time mm. uh, i'm not so so i take your point about you know this you know we we have it we find evidence that women are increasingly in in better universities as, as measured by income but i think Cheryl's point was more about okay well you know uh, is the point at which they join Keeping that, you know, keeping the type of university constant may be different between men and women. I'm not sure how, with your data, I'm not sure. Well,
1: how. here's an idea. Here's an idea. What you, what you could perhaps do with these data is you could look at the um, sex of incumbent, and including new starters of whom we see a number, then you could go track their performance subsequently. So at least describe the performance of the university. So descriptively, you could certainly establish whether there are differences in the subsequent performance of university. So it's a bit like an event study. In fact, that's exactly how I would propose you do it. With the you could do it with these data. We haven't done that. That's a different paper, but it's a nice idea. An event study would do the following. You'd be looking at the performance of the universities. Perhaps you'd be looking at their tuition fees or their grant income, or even actually, as in the CEO literature, their pure size, which, but remember, I've stripped out here, but size is going to be a very, very important component here, the number of students you actually have. And then you can, you can look at those trends over time, and then you can, you can imagine what happens when a woman comes in versus when a man comes in. And you can compare what happens before and after, and you might be able to make some inferences on that basis. You're still left with this very interesting question, which I think is at the root of, of what you're asking, is could it be that women only manage to get into certain institutions at a time when they are when when the institution is not doing so well? And you've said there's a literature on that. That one would need to, to think hard about how to deal with that analytically and certainly in interpreting any results in other words what i'm saying is i would be loath to conclude that the simple sort of estimation i'm describing would be able to uncover whether women or men were better at running universities that would be a quite a, a high a high bar to 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 overcome
0: Okay, I think we we can move on then. Um there is uh, another question uh here. Um going back to to this attributes of men and women, what was the last job before becoming a vice chancellor? Does the proportion of female versus male vice chancellors uh, match this? Do they Okay, differ? so
1: again I I I haven't all I've done really is abstract away from that in the sense that I've controlled for these work histories. Uh, when And I've done that because I'm starting from the proposition that they're going to affect earnings generation by men versus women. And they could be attributes that if they differ across men and women, I need to account for them because it's part of their human capital. However, I could have looked more directly at them and spent time discussing them and even considered whether there's gender differences across, for example, the returns to being an ex-vice-chancellor. That would be, in our estimation, that would be an interaction effect or something like that. I just haven't done that. And again, all I can do is emphasize that I don't have that many women in, in the data in any case. So one needs to be quite cautious in, in starting to do that. But certainly, it's something that could be done. But I'm 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 the sort of analyst who's doesn't like to do fishing expeditions, by which I mean, toying with the data in the hope that something comes up. I'd much rather start with something that's theoretically um, strong, or, or or an idea that's based upon something. I think, yeah, that that's that That's something that that needs to be tested in the data because I've got some theoretical expectation as to the outcome rather than just seeing what happens if I do this, that, or the other with the data because remember if you do that and you do this that or the other a hundred times and you're and you're looking at you know ninety five percent um confidence, then five times it's gonna come up at random anyway, so you do need to be careful about that sort of thing.
0: All right. Well, Cheryl says uh, thank you for that thorough answer, referring to the previous one. <laughs> and um, uh, the, this is an interesting question: How will this data and research influence future vice chancellor hires?
1: Well, you know better than I do, Almeida. It, it won't. It won't influence anything. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, I. I, I it depends how it's taken. I mean, bear in mind, this hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. If I was lucky enough to have it published in the paper, such as the one that Amadena recently edited, the Oxford Review of Economic Policy, it may well end up um, being taken somewhat seriously. And I think that universities should be, I mean, they might they might take comfort in the fact that the gender wage gap seems to have closed. I might take comfort in the fact that um, the returns to the um, attributes of men and women vice chancellors do not appear to be a key aspect in explaining differences in the wages of men and women. However, it is still notable, one, that 64 of the 115 institutions hadn't employed a single woman Um, in the 20 years that we were looking at. And secondly, there there does seem to be some indication that when a man replaces a woman, he sees no difference in earnings relative to the outgoing woman. Whereas if it's the other way around, we do see a, a wage penalty for the woman coming in. So Given that, and given what we know about the literature at large about hiring discrimination in the labour market, I don't think we can be confident about the absence of discrimination in this labour market. It's quite possible that there has been and is ongoing discrimination in this market. It's just that we haven't captured very much of it. I have seen a diminution in the in the starter wage gap, but as I say, on this one particular thing, when man replaces woman, woman replaces man in the same institution, there does seem to be something going on, and I think that's deserving of of of, of further investigation. I'm also aware of the fact that you know, in the work that people like you are doing, Almudena, on the, the Swan Athena stuff, that there are, and indeed in in women in academia um there's plenty of evidence to suggest that there are um unsavory and and inefficient uh, practices regarding the treatment of men versus women in in higher education institutions would we expect vice chancellors to be any different i don't know i what i take some encouragement from the fact that what traditionally might have been viewed as discriminatory practices, that's the unobserved differences, the, the, the returns to, to the attributes of men and women are not playing a big role in wage formation across men and women, but something on the hiring front I do think might be going on.
0: Sorry, I I have some problem with my microphone. There is a question here that I think relates to to one of your previous work. And uh, because it says here, the final sentence of your paper suggests that the gender wage uh, gap is largely explained by motherhood. Should we strive for equality opportunities rather than equal outcomes? I think this refers to some of your previous papers, yeah. but it's related to this point about access, right? Because the history of these are older workers, but certainly their their history um, is probably different for men and women uh, entering this market, and that uh, makes, uh,
1: absolutely. I mean, the many of these men and women, since they're you know, they're in my sort of age, they will. Some of them will remember when the Equal Pay Act first came in. And as we know from the paper that we did for you, Alma Dana, and the history of the gender wage gap, boy, did that make a big difference to to closing the gap many years ago. But since then, in in many labor markets, gaps continue. A lot, not all of them are to do with motherhood. That's a really, really important point that we make in one of our papers, I think we did for gender work and occupations as part of this project. Even people in the birth cohorts who remain childless throughout their lives, there's still a gap between men and women. Um, But it's certainly true that there's a preponderance of literature out there now suggesting that a substantial part of the gender wage gap is linked to childbearing and childrearing. That men indeed, when they become fathers, their wages are often seen to rise, whereas when women receive a penalty. And this may well have been a feature for these vice chancellors in their earlier careers. And of course, that could conceivably have impacted on their starter wages, because oftentimes, as we know, as anybody knows, as they've moved from one job to another, a new employer will offer a wage that's X percent above the last wage you were receiving. So it's quite conceivable that the wage trajectories of those who become vice chancellors later in their life have been partly impacted by what's happened to them in in their earlier life as a result of their family responsibilities. We also know that time out of the labour market and in particular part-time earnings are heavily problematic, uh, um, both for men and women, actually, part-time employment, but part-time employment being a key aspect of what happens as people re-enter the labour market after having young children um, doesn't do you very much good in terms of your earnings profile over the long run. So these things could well have been features even for these vice chancellors. Of course, by the time they're reaching older age, again, they might have other caring responsibilities. Some of them will be grandparents, for example. Um, So I'm not in any way diminishing that. And in fact, I don't have much data on that in this particular study. All I have is something about their, their recent work histories and where they've come from.
0: All right. Um, I think we're very close to 2 p.m. So I think we can um, we can leave it here. There are all the questions have been answered that uh, everyone has been asking. Um, So I'd like to thank you, Alex. And and thank you, everyone, for for listening and for joining Alex and myself in this in this talk. Um, Please uh, continue to visit the UCL Minds website for for Future lectures and um, take good care. Thank you very much, Alex.
1: Thank you, Amadena. Thank you very